really difficult to kill an email program. I mean, one of the you know, kind of sad truths about email marketing is that you can do email marketing like kind of not all that well and still generate like a decent ROI. It's sort of sad. <laughs> it means that a lot of brands like leave a lot of money on the table. People settling for good enough. They're like, oh, that's good enough, especially if they're comparing it to, you know, their TV or radio ads or other you know, traditional channels. The ROI on email is, is so strong that a lot of people are like, oh, all right, that's that's great. Email's not on fire. Email's doing fantastic. So we'll just turn our attention over to these other channels that are really struggling and let, let's invest a lot of money there. Um, that's the opposite of what I would do. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode number one of emailgeeks.show, the podcast show where top experts discuss email marketing and deliverability. My name is Sela Yoffe. I'm an email deliverability consultant from Israel. My guest today is Chad S. White, the head of research at Oracle Digital Experience Agency and the author of Email Marketing Rules, in my opinion, the number one book about email marketing. The book was recently released in its fourth extended edition. It's great to have you on the show, Chad. Thanks for having me, Sal. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You know, so many email geeks, email folks saying that they fell into email. It, it just happened. So I'm curious to know, how did you get into email? Yeah, so, you know... I, um, I sort of fell in as well, but I did make some very conscious decisions <laughs> to get into the email marketing space. So I'm a, a journalist by training, and I worked for years for Condé Nast and Dow Jones. And as part of our coverage of retailers, where I spent a lot of like my time, retail and mm-hmm. technology, uh, we signed up for retailers' email marketing programs because they would talk about, you know, new initiatives for their companies, um, you know, new web and other types of initiatives, and we would use those for leads to then follow up with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the turning point for me was that my brother started a blog. This was hmm. like mid-2000s when blogs were still pretty fresh and new and exciting. And um, he started a blog. And as a younger, competitive brother, <laughs> I said, well, if my brother can start a blog, I can totally start a blog. And I thought, well, what would I blog about? And I was like, oh, I already get all of these emails from retailers. Like, I find that interesting. I'm in my inbox all the time looking at these things. Let me blog about that. And so I started the retail email blog and I tracked over a hundred of the top online retailers every day, pretty much. Like mm-hmm. six days a week, I was blogging about what I was seeing in my inbox um, and doing a lot of sort of uh, quant analysis of how many emails were being sent by brands, when they sent them, the most popular days, um, and, and that kind of stuff. And Uh, I got the attention of some folks in the email marketing community, and I got hired uh, by the Email Experience Council. I was employee number three there as it was just getting started, and I've never looked back, and it's been the best decision of my life. The email marketing community is fantastic. I really love it. And I love the fact that email marketing is constantly evolving and changing and adapting. So I'm a... I love change, and mm-hmm. email marketing has delivered that for me 
always there's a new story. You are now head of research at Oracle Digital Experience Agency. Can you tell us what you're doing there? Yes, yeah, so we're a full-service global digital marketing agency inside of Oracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we assist a lot of the biggest brands in the world uh, yeah. with their digital marketing programs. We do a lot of email marketing. It's probably about <laughs> 80% of what we do. But we also do SMS and mobile and push, uh, browser push and, and mobile mm-hmm. push. Um, And, and do a lot of web work as well. But certainly email marketing is absolutely our home base. And I'm really fortunate <laughs> to work with some really talented folks in creative and strategy and deliverability. Um, and it's just great. I mean, I know a lot, but <laughs> there, I work with some people who like are... truly experts you know in their specialty and it's great to be around them I'm constantly learning new things you have written over 4,000 articles about digital and email marketing it's an impressive number I wrote around 150 articles over the past four years I'm blogging yeah so <laughs> so it really is a ridiculous number of blockers and uh, you know I got about like two 2,500 of those over eight and a half years of writing the retail email blog, where again, I was blogging almost every day. And a lot of those blog posts were on the short side. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the blog posts I write now are quite lengthy. So yeah. like my blogging strategy currently is it's very, very <laughs> different than what it was early when, you know, I was writing posts that were, you know, Two, three hundred words uh, yeah. very routinely uh, I just wrote a blog post you know with a lot of other people about generative AI for text that was like 2700 words which I think a lot of people would say that's not really a blog post that's a white paper um, but those are the kinds of deep dives that we now like currently do on, on topics especially really complicated topics like generative AI um, But you know so how do I do it I think you know having various strategies over time mm-hmm. and trying to make sure you're matching the content and the content length to like what's appropriate for that um, and don't like artificially try to inflate or cut things off like we just try to write um, you know I try to write as many words as is necessary yeah to exactly. explore a topic and you know in terms of like what where I, I get the ideas um, again I feel like there's like uh, you know things are always changing and shifting and frankly one of the the most helpful things that you know I currently do is I, I talk to our consultants who are in constant contact with our clients and our clients have questions and if mm-hmm. we have more than one of our clients asking about something that we don't have a point of view on yet, That's a sign that hey maybe this is something we should write about and that's one of the cool things about my job currently is that it is largely kind of client driven and mm-hmm. so we're able to create content you know and a point of view that we share with our clients and then we repurpose that and share it out to the email marketing community and the digital marketing community so I have like sort of a dual facing role which is fantastic we're able to, to kind of serve both <laughs> you know internal and external audiences so You recently released your book email marketing rules in an fourth and extended edition what are some of the main reasons why people should read it and I know you're not biased 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little a little biased. There are some other really good books uh, about you know email marketing uh, on the market too. So mine's not the only one, um, but I do think that mine's the most comprehensive, and I think that's why a lot of people like it. I mean, it's now you know the fourth edition is now in two volumes, which is kind of crazy that it's in two volumes now. But that's how much more that's my next question. Why why yeah. why two Why, why do, you know, <laughs> why so many words about email marketing? So, I mean, it's, it's sort of two things. I mean, part of it is, is that, and I've released now over the last 10 years, four editions. So it's almost to the, to the month. Um, the fourth edition was 10 years after the first, mm -hmm. uh, but the second edition came out like, I think it was like 18 months after the first. And then the third was like two and a half years after the second. So it's been almost six years between the third and the fourth edition, which is more of a normal period of time. But uh, part of the reason is, is that I've been learning more and more. So mm -hmm. as much as I love that I am a part of people's email marketing journeys. Everybody is sort of a part of my email marketing journey too. Like I'm constantly learning more, um, you know, perfecting the ways of talking about to topics. And then also it's sort of expanding mm -hmm. on like, you know, topics that have been around for a while that I just didn't cover in past editions. But a lot of what's different between the third and the fourth edition is that there's also a lot of change. There's a ton of things that didn't exist when the third edition was published back in 2017. Such Dark as? Dark mode didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Schema didn't exist. Amp for email didn't exist. Beamy didn't exist. <laughs> Mail privacy protection didn't exist. Generative AI didn't exist. There's yeah. a lot of brand new things that email marketers you know, need to take <laughs> account of. And that's part of the reason why it's now quite a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the other part of your question is like, why are there two? Why isn't yeah. one, one giant book? Mm -hmm. um, and part of it is just, it's easier to handle two <laughs> smaller books. <laughs> That's part of it. But there is a very logical division between the two. So uh, the very, the first edition of Email Marketing Rules was just rules. It was 120 rules at that time. And that was the entirety of the book. Mm -hmm. And Volume one of the fourth edition is very much in that vein. It's 184 rules, and that's largely, that's pretty much it. So it's very focused on the rules. And the great thing about dividing it up in that way is that the rules are very tactical. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of designed for email marketing specialists, uh, folks who are down in the weeds, to be able to kind of audit their program and audit their own knowledge and kind of go like topic by topic, you know, subtopic by subtopic and, yeah. you know, build their knowledge and build their programs. Like really very tactical drilling down to see, all right, on welcome emails, how can I make my program better? Okay, on mm -hmm. email signups, how can I make my program better? And like just very, very specific. And one of the cool things about the the fourth edition is that that volume one all of the rules now have mm -hmm. exercises uh, yeah. that go along with each of the rules to help marketers apply the rule to their program and so it's you know it's so, so for instance here let me just share something real quick so uh, rule number 111 
is pay extra attention to the top portion of your email that appears above the fold and ensure that it's well branded. And I include a bunch of information about what you should pay attention to, what should kind of be in this space. Mm-hmm. And I think in just reading the rule, you might think, oh, yeah, yeah, we probably, I think we do that. So the exercise is to go and look <laughs> at your emails, you know, over the past month and really pay attention to each email, like what is appearing before I scroll. And I, it's kind of taking that concept and then directly applying it to your program where you can start to see the disconnect. Um, so mm-hmm. that's one of the exciting things about volume one now. So, and then volume two is much more about sort of frameworks, kind of pulling all the rules back together and Mm -hmm. showing you how they all interconnect uh, around big concepts and big goals. And there are some really great, really long checklists, like (laughs) multi-page checklists that are about, you know, email marketing metrics, about automation, Mm -hmm. all the different kinds of potential triggers that you can have for your program. all the different sort of acquisition sources you can have and what you should be paying attention to regarding each one. So a lot of great detail, but it's at the strategy level. So while volume one is great for like that specialist who's kind of down in the weeds, mm-hmm. uh, volume two is much more for, you know, hopefully some VPs of marketing, some CMOs, like, you know, folks who often don't have the, like a big picture knowledge of how email marketing works. Volume two will give them all of that information that they need. And then my, my hope, though, is certainly that most people get both volumes. So if you are a director of email marketing, if you are a manager of email marketing, if you aspire to be either of those things, if you mm-hmm. aspire to be or you're currently running an email marketing program, it probably makes a ton of sense for you to get both because you need both tactics and the deep dive, and you need the strategy and understanding the big picture. So that's how the two volumes kind of break out. Mm-hmm. Besides reading your book, what expert advice do you have for marketeers who are new to email marketing? Yeah, I mean, that's a major challenge for email marketers because even people who have marketing degrees, they probably weren't taught <laughs> maybe anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> about email marketing during their time in university, which is kind of astounding at this point, considering how long email marketing has been around, the fact that 90 plus percent of all businesses use email marketing, but it's not really taught at university at all, despite the fact that there's like entire courses on social media marketing in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. um, which I think most of that knowledge is probably obsolete by the time they graduate <laughs> since yeah. it seems to change <laughs> so rapidly. Um, so it really is a, it's a challenge. And mm-hmm. certainly I hope that folks you know, use resources uh, like my book. I hope that folks go to conferences. Um, there are some online courses that you can take. Certainly there is, one of the things I really love about our community is that there are so many people who are willing to share mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, their knowledge. And there's lots of great blogs uh, out there that, that folks should be reading. There's really active communities uh, on, on Twitter and in the, the Email Geek Slack channel. 
yeah. some really great communities where people are like very open with sharing. So it really is on email marketers to constantly be reading and sort of re-educating themselves. And certainly my hope, uh, you know, my, my role on this, at least with the book, is to hopefully give people sort of a new, like a solid underpinning mm-hmm. of knowledge and to, to <clears throat> help fill some gaps um, that they might have. But the thing that's super important to recognize is that you're, you mentioned that we work with like some of the biggest brands and we do we work with some really sophisticated, complicated brands, yeah. but they're always hiring new people too, that are coming in fresh into to email marketing. And those people, you know, also need to like bring their knowledge up. And so there's always this new audience of new people who are coming in and don't have great knowledge and they need to learn the basics and, and understand how this channel is different from other channels. And hopefully my book can supply that kind of knowledge. Cats are believed to have nine lives. Even marketing appears to have something in common. It seems like there is always a new thing trying to replace or undermine email marketing. What do you think about this? Someone is always <laughs> trying to kill email marketing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, email marketing is, oh, it's such a great thing to kick, right? Like, because <laughs> it's owned by lots of different companies, not mm-hmm. by one. Yeah. So, you can kick email just as hard as you want and email doesn't say you're wrong <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> right mm-hmm. like no one is speaking up for email there's no there's no voice right so yeah it's 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 so fun to kick right you, you've had like you know facebook messenger like folks are facebook saying facebook messenger oh that's gonna that's gonna kill email <laughs> um you know what google wave was supposed to kill email and mm-hmm. uh slack was supposed to kill email i even heard one time that rss was supposed to kill email it, it's <laughs> i think everyone realizes again how ridiculous these statements are now that it you know that yeah. you're right like email like has i think way more than nine lives and the thing that makes it really powerful is that it's always adapting it's not one thing you know the email of and the certainly the email marketing of the year 2000 has nothing in common with the you know the email marketing of today mm-hmm. you know it's always a, you know changing in really significant ways back in 2005 there was no mobile email besides yeah. blackberry mm-hmm. um, but there's no mobile html email and then you know the iPhone came along and radically changed you know email experiences. So it's always adapting. I am intensely skeptical of any walled garden that says that they're going to defeat email. So WhatsApp would be another one of these walled gardens where they control everything. Uh, these platforms have demonstrated to be. Uh, unstable, highly mutable, uh, subject to radical change, like again and again. I mean, just look at what's happening with Twitter right now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, anybody who's like invested a ton in Twitter is now just wringing their hands big time (laughs) because they see all of that investment is at risk. So I think everybody has to be super careful anytime it's not that they shouldn't invest in walled gardens, mm-hmm. but if you put all your eggs in a basket that you don't own in any way, 
you've opened yourself up to tremendous risk. So you have to just understand what those risks are. But I'm deeply skeptical of any, you know, private messaging system that's mm -hmm. owned by one company being able to dethrone email because I feel like that's the thing that makes email amazing and awesome is that nobody owns it. And it's like this distributed network, you know, this open platform. And that's what makes it, you know, highly accessible, inexpensive, um, used almost universally. And, you know, the walled gardens can't touch it. Like even, you know, like Facebook, you know, in its heyday, and I know it's, you know, it's still really, really, really big, mm -hmm. but email marketing is still like email is still way bigger than Facebook. So, and that's because it's just, it's inherently more stable. Each channel has its own set of rules, strengths, and weaknesses. Why is email considered so distinct and unique? Yeah, every channel has their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, I agree, but one of the nice things about email marketing is that it is asynchronous and mm -hmm. not highly interruptive um, in most cases. Um, which is very, very different to say an SMS or you know, mobile push or you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. lots of messaging platforms where they're automatically pushing you know, that to your phone um, and interrupting whatever you're doing. So I, I, I see that as like, you know, really, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that doesn't make it better. It just makes it different, right? Yeah. Like it's not, it's not email versus anything, but mm -hmm. that is one of the features of email that certainly accounts for, you know, the higher messaging volumes and such. Like, you know, there is a lot of talk about people getting overwhelmed with messages and certainly people talk about getting overwhelmed with email, but most people don't really subscribe to a lot of brands messages. It's, it's very small. Like people don't have, you know, a hundred favorite brands. They've got like 10. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the other thing that I think is important to understand about email is that a lot of people, when they know they want to engage with a brand, they then go to their inbox and search. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, let me see what, you know, my favorite brand has been talking about. Let's see, you know, what the discounts are. You know, like they know when they're in the market. So, you know, there's certainly a lot of people who are, you know, engaging with their inbox, you know, day in and day out and seeing those messages and making decisions about what to engage with and, and what not to. But there's also a ton of people that they mm -hmm. sign up for those emails because they love that brand, but they don't want to see those emails every day. And they're very happy for it to be in their promo tab or some folder that they've shunted them into. And when they're ready to engage with that brand, then they go and they see, all right, what's what are they talking about right now? So I, I, I kind of like that on-demand kind of feature where it's not in your face constantly. But there, there's tons of mm -hmm. reasons, use cases, where the more interruptive channels make a ton of sense. You know, SMS makes an awful lot of sense for curbside pickup, in-store pickup, you know, technician is about to arrive, your delivery mm -hmm. has arrived, those kinds of messages where there's a lot of urgency and you yeah. really want to know about them and not miss them, SMS is gold. And I would say, you know, way better than email for those kinds of use cases. So, 
you know, as I think you alluded to, like understanding, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of all the channels and where they shine and where they don't and what the tolerances are uh, in terms of frequency and mm -hmm. expectations around messages uh, is super important. And also like understanding message expectations, right? Like if you were designing a campaign that you would run across channels, you wouldn't send the same message to email, to SMS, to social. You wouldn't do that, right? You, mm -hmm, would, mm -hmm. you would make sure you understand what are the opportunities, what are the message expectations um, and behaviors that you can really tap into each of those channels. In social, hopefully, you would be trying to engage people in a very different way than you would via email and even SMS. So understanding the differences is really key to being able to optimize that message and that experience across all of your channels. Is it considered an abuse of the channel to use WhatsApp for sending shopping cart abandonment messages? What do you think about it? Well, I guess it depends <laughs> on the signal, right? Like, uh, I, <laughs> I mean, not to, not to like go too deep, but like, um, I think one of the things I think is really important to understand about triggers is signal strength, especially around something like a cart abandonment or a browse abandonment, right? If somebody goes to a website mm -hmm. and they're on a page for two seconds and then they abandon that page, like, is that worthy of a browse abandonment email? It probably isn't. That's a really, really weak signal. Mm -hmm. um, but if they were to be on that page for a much longer period of time, or if they went to that page and then went back to that page, you know, subsequently and, and spend some time there, that would be a much stronger signal. Same thing with a cart abandonment. Uh, if I put a $1 item in my shopping cart, is that worthy of a cart abandonment email? Mm -hmm. Probably not in my book, depending on, again, what it is that you sell. Maybe, maybe you sell a lot of really inexpensive items and maybe it makes sense. Um, but for most retailers, most e-commerce companies, that's probably not doing it. Um, However, if I were to put $1,000 worth of merchandise in my cart and abandon that, that's probably not a single cart abandonment email. Mm -hmm. And maybe uh, it would make a lot of sense to use a more interruptive channel like SMS or WhatsApp or, or some kind of push message mm -hmm. uh, versus just sending an email <clears throat> because the stakes are so much higher. You've got a lot more revenue at risk. So I'm a big fan of like sort of proportional response and understanding what those signals are and, you know, kind of making sure you're responding appropriately to the signals that you're getting. That reminds me of a scene from The West Wing. What's a proportional response? Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You're the uh, you're the, the the chief executive of the email <laughs> channel. So, use your power responsibly. We mentioned email killers. Later in the podcast we will talk about external killers. But I'm interested to hear about the most common email marketing program killers you've encountered. I think it's really difficult to kill an email program. Um, I mean, one of the you know, kind of sad truths about email marketing is that you can do email marketing like kind of not all that well and still generate like a decent ROI, um, which, you know, I think- That's sad. It's sort of sad. <laughs> and it means that a lot of brands like leave a lot of money on the table because they're just like, I think there's a lot of like people settling for good enough. They're like, oh, that's, 
that's good enough, especially if they're comparing it to, you know, their TV or radio mm-hmm. ads or other you know, traditional channels. The ROI on email is, is so strong that a lot of people are like, oh, all right, that's that's great. Email's not on fire. Email's doing fantastic. So we'll just turn our attention over to these other channels that are really struggling and let, let's invest a lot of money there. Um, that's the opposite of what I would do. <laughs> I do think that's part of the a big part of the reason why email is chronically underfunded is that there's a lot of like good enough, uh, a lot of people settling, <laughs> and I also think that also sometimes like people like misunderstand, like they under, they misunderstand return on investment. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of brands, you know, kind of laud that they get like eighty to one return on investment with email. I heard one company bragging about how they get like 100 to 1 return on their investment in their email marketing program. And to me, like they were super proud of that. And yeah. to me, hearing that, I think, oh my gosh, you're doing it totally wrong. Like It you, was one of the ESPs, yeah? Well, uh, well so, yeah, there was one ESP recently talking about like what a high ROI all of yeah. their clients get. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so like when I see numbers like that, I think, oh my goodness, like you were doing this all wrong. You're stopping way too soon. You're grabbing all the low-hanging fruit and you're skipping off on your merry way uh, when you're just leaving like a tree full of fruit. Like <laughs> you just reach up a little bit higher. You should be doing more work and getting lower returns, right? If you're achieving a hundred to one you know, return on investment on your email marketing program, you need to be looking for more programs, more initiatives that you can do that would get 80 to 1, 60 to 1, 40 to 1, even 20 to 1. Like, there's a ton more things you could be doing that would be, yes, delivering lower returns on your investment, but you would be growing your total return, your absolute return. <laughs> you'd be growing, you'd be making more money, which is the whole point. Nobody, nobody sets out... Um, you know, you want you want good margins for mm-hmm. sure, but most companies like given the chance to have really high rates of return versus really high returns would choose really high returns. And so I feel like there's like a little bit of like um, you know we've kind of done our industry a little bit of a disservice on yeah. focusing on ROI so much because I think it leads to people stopping way too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and leaving just tons and tons of money on the table. Uh, you know, so lately, the analogy I've been using is a Vegas, <laughs> a Vegas analogy. <laughs> like, imagine if you go to Vegas and you find a penny slot machine and you put in a hundred pennies, mm-hmm. and it spit out forty dollars, eighty dollars, whatever. Um, would you stop? <laughs> would you just get up and leave? I don't. I don't think most people would. But that does seem to be what's happening. I would stay there and keep feeding in pennies until my return went way down. But if it mm-hmm. kept giving me, you know, 40 to 1 returns on my time sitting there and on my money, like I would stay at the seat, but it seems like a lot of brands are getting up from the seat. The absence of standards is one of the challenges in email. I'm curious why major technology companies aren't collaborating to make sense of it. You're adorable, Sela. I mean, having companies come together and talk together <laughs> and, and strategize together. Yeah, no, I mean, this is like something that we've been calling for for 
ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a long, long time. Like, you know, the fact that email clients all implement dark mode differently mm-hmm. is frustrating. The fact that they don't support the same like Rendering, code yeah. base, right? Yeah. They don't all support CSS interactivity. Mm-hmm. They don't all support the same fonts. Like, <laughs> you know, for a long time, Microsoft didn't support animated GIFs, which was, I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, but yeah, these the standards, I mean, there's been a call for, you know, like the internet, you know, W3 has very clear web standards and mm-hmm. has for a very long time. And there just isn't anything remotely similar for email, seemingly for no good reason. Like there's no, there's no, there's no compelling reason for there not to be more cohesive, you know, email code standards. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't see the reason. I mean, if we all agree that that the web needs universal standards, uh, why not email? But this has been something that you know we've been harping on for a very long time. It hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, and we have now like, again, like really big disconnects, you know, and you see it, you know, with things like schema, you see mm-hmm. it with things like CSS based interactivity and for email, like you, you can glimpse really promising functionality that withers and stays small because of a lack of broader support, because it just doesn't have enough critical mass for marketers, you know, to, to ask about it. I mean, we're literally <laughs> like at this point, n- none of our clients are talking about AMP for email. Like, none of them. Um, and it just, cause it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for them because they can't reach um, enough of their subscribers to make it worth all the effort. One more example of the lack of adoption of standards in the email industry is AMP for email, which promised exciting new features inside the inbox. We will later discuss geographic differences in email. Have you seen some major implementations of AMP for email in the States? It's super low. It's like super low. Um, And it's not really all like it's not it's not AMP's fault. Um, there's been a number of sort of headwinds, including the pandemic, mm-hmm. <laughs> you okay. know, and, you know, the pandemic, the great resignation, uh, you know, the fact that AMP for mobile went away, there's a lot of confusion about like, oh, is AMP dead? And like, all right, what is it? All right, is it the mobile AMP or is it AMP for email? Like it's not, the branding is not great. Also Gmail sort of, uh, Google stepped sort of away from AMP for email because they didn't want it to be a Google thing. They wanted it to be an industry standard, but when they stepped away, it definitely created a, a vacuum that didn't get filled. Um, but I, I do think that mm-hmm. there was sort of environmental, you know, like, you know, again, the pandemic, the great resignation, people, you know, needed to get faster and get leaner. And AMP for email doesn't help with either of those things because it increases email production time yeah. uh, quite a lot. So I think the timing was just unfortunately like really poor, but ignoring all of that, really the thing that has to, the only thing that can change it really is as if Apple were to support AMP for email. Here in the US, mm-hmm. that's what it would take 
to change things. I don't, Microsoft, like they, um, they did an experiment with it and then they shut it down. I don't even think if like, if they were to adapt, adopt it, if that would be enough, I think you really need Apple to support it mm -hmm. before it becomes truly viable here in the U S just because they have so much market share. Um, and I don't see that changing, uh, because of, you know, there are strong stances around privacy. I think it would be very easy for them to say, hey, look, allowing more functionality in the email opens up, you mm -hmm. know, potentially more uh, more privacy risk. So I've I heard, don't see them yeah. doing it, which, again, makes me sad because I think Amp Email <laughs> does a lot of really cool stuff that would be exciting for brands. I mean, if you look at the data, what it shows you is that people are more inclined, dramatically more inclined to take actions when you pull that, so some of that landing page experience into the email itself. So for instance, like I, I remember like, I remember the first, um, and for email experience that I had, it was a product review request, mm -hmm. uh, from Home Depot and, you know, I got it and it has like, you know, the fields right in the email and you can just type right into it. And I swear I didn't realize that I was still in the email until I hit submit. And then it opened up my browser to confirm the submission of the review. It was at that point that I actually realized I hadn't been on the web all that time, that I was still in the email. Mm -hmm. And that was like really amazing because it you know, one of the things that, that people don't understand is that the amount of friction between an email and a landing page mm -hmm. is tremendous. They see it as like one click. Like they're yeah. very dismissive. They'll say like, oh, well, that's just, it's just one click. Um, mm -hmm. But we see across all web experiences, adding an additional click to a process reduces completion, you know, cuts yeah. off journeys prematurely. Like, you know, you want to limit that. And so time and time again, be it AMP for email or video and email, when you pull content into the email and reduce the number of clicks that it takes to take action, it has tremendous effects. Mm -hmm. Like I know that um, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at like video and email um, uh, like view rates and stuff. But mm -hmm. uh, the last time I looked at it, um, emails that we had embedded video in, you know, for clients had like twice or more the uptake of forcing them to click through to a landing page page and watch yeah. there. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's a, it's an entirely different argument about whether or not, you know, what's the value long term of getting people on a landing page sooner mm -hmm. to like continue their journey. But there's no doubt that in terms of asking them to do a particular thing, if you can, whether it's watching a video, completing a form, you know, browsing a limited selection, whatever, if you pull it into the email, people do it at much higher rates, like 2x, 3x. You know, email is always considered as a distributed and independent channel because it doesn't belong to any major tech company. But these days, Big Tech seems to be one of the so-called email killers. I'll be honest, I was really kind of shaken by Apple and mail privacy protection because that does 
the fact that they were able to have such a big impact all on their own in certain geographic areas really speaks that there has been quite a bit of, of concentration. Um, you know, AOL and Yahoo have gotten much weaker over the years mm-hmm. and, you know, Microsoft, you know, has a very strong presence in corporate markets, but Gmail has made a lot of headway there with G Suite. So, yeah, I do get um, I do get concerned that a lot of the infrastructure is now run by Gmail um, on sort of the back end and Apple on the front end. Um, <laughs> so it hasn't come quite concentrated, which does alarm me. Uh, but at least it's not owned by one. But yes, I think that's a very valid concern. I think it is becoming a little bit uncomfortably more closed than open. But the fact that you still do have a number of really large players that control the marketplace. And I think you're also your, your point is really good about understanding your region. Mm-hmm. Uh, the email marketplace definitely varies really radically depending on where you go in the world. Um, the U.S. Mm-hmm. is very different than, say, India, uh, where you know Gmail has a really strong hold and uh, Android devices are used very prevalently. And so you have AMP for email doing really well in India, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really exciting to see. Like they're showing us what email could kind of be in a more interactive form, which I find fascinating and exciting. And it also makes me sad that we don't have that ability here in the U.S. because of the market shares. Um, I wish here in the U.S., AMP for mm-hmm. email was really a viable um, approach, but it's, it's uh, arguably not um, because the uptake is, is so incredibly low. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, looking at sort of uh, local differences, not only just within email, but within digital marketing, you know, for instance, in China, and I know large parts of Africa, they sort of skipped email and they went right to mobile. So SMS and mm-hmm. um and app-based messaging are massive, you know, in those places. Like and super email apps. is very small. Like those yeah. super apps. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And in, in China, they got the super mm-hmm. apps. Um, you know, which, uh, you know, now, of course, there's some folks here in the U.S. who are, who are thinking about making uh, super apps as well. I know Elon Musk thinks that somehow he's going to pull that off. I'm deeply skeptical <laughs> of his ability to succeed. Uh, I as you know, I recently wrote an, an yeah. only influencer uh, blog post about who I thought were like more likely to pull it off. Um, you know, folks like Walmart, and I would love to see maybe uh, Amazon take a mm-hmm. stab at it. Um, that would be exciting. I'd love to see Amazon get into the email space uh, as an, an email client, as mm-hmm. a as a mailbox provider. I think that would make a ton of sense for them. So I laid that. I laid out my argument there yeah, uh, in that blog post. Everything we'll in place. Just pl- plug the Lego and run it almost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Amazon is a is a technology company, so it would make yeah. just a ton of sense for them. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. I'd love <laughs> to see that, and I'd love you know that would introduce some more competition here in the U.S. in the email marketing uh, landscape. So uh, or in the email client. Uh, you know, marketplace. So I'd, I'd love to see that. <laughs> that would, I think that would be healthy for us, but I think yeah. it'd also be really exciting for, for Amazon. There are two tech giants in particular that have impacted email marketing. One is Apple with their MPP, Mail Privacy Protection, and the other one is 
Google with their Gmail tabs and other rules. Let's start with Apple and their mail privacy protection. Mail privacy protection uh, is a privacy feature that was released by Apple, I guess coming September up on... September 21. Yeah, so, and now it's uh, reached essentially kind of full adoption. Like, essentially everybody has it <laughs> on Apple Mail platforms, whether yeah. it's mobile, uh, tablet, or, uh, or desktop. Yeah. It, it gets, like, turned on at, like, 95% plus, you know, rates, like, really high. And it does, actually, it does a lot of things. <laughs> um, it, it blocks forwards, it blo- uh, blocks device information, mm-hmm. um, it obscures uh, the IP location by using um, relays. Um, but yeah. the biggest thing that it does is that it obscures opens. And it does this by essentially opening every email and sort of flooding uh, you know, email systems with tons and tons of fake opens. And so there are real opens in all of these auto-generated opens, yeah. but you can't easily tell uh, which ones are the real ones and which ones are the fake ones, which of course is mm-hmm. absolutely by design. That is what <laughs> MPP is trying to do. Yeah. It's trying to say, hey, like you shouldn't know when somebody opens it. So we're just going to open everything uh, for the most part and make it really hard for you to tell you know, which individuals are, are opening emails. It's a huge project uh, on, on Apple's side to, to do that. It's a huge and maybe expensive move Yeah, privacy, no, they definitely, yeah, they definitely aside, increased you know. their costs uh, quite <laughs> yeah. a lot because it, um, they needed a lot more computing power yeah. to, to, to do all of those, those opens and load up all of those images, mm-hmm. uh, which early on they seemed to really struggle with, but they seem to be fine with now. Yeah. So that's what MPP does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it causes a lot of problems for email marketers uh, who are largely trying to do the right thing. Um, yeah. and so God, this is, this is such a rabbit hole, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, I don't know. but, but your question is, is your, your original question was, you know, about opens and how yeah. not all ASPs are kind of being transparent about what's happening. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Some ESPs don't seem to be mentioning at all. Like it's a thing. Um, some ESPs, uh, like Oracle, we take out the, auto opens we set mm-hmm. those aside you can still get access to them but we don't include them in open reporting um, and I think I feel great about that decision that's not the decision that everybody mm-hmm. makes but this is a decision I feel very comfortable with um, because in like in the average case 80% ish mm-hmm. of those opens are going to be junk and It's yeah. just going to be confabulated fake opens by Apple and I'm not aware of any other data source that a company would look at and say oh we know this is 80% just garbage data let's use that mm-hmm. um, so I feel very comfortable with us removing it but what that does is that definitely suppresses opens it lowers that baseline mm-hmm. uh, now other ESPs have you just added in all the auto-generated opens and they've achieved like a new much higher baseline I think part of the problem there is that it makes it harder to see yeah. fluctuations in 
the real open behavior because mm-hmm. it's masked by all of all of this data. <laughs> yeah. And then, so yet another approach has been to try to adjust open rates by looking at the proportion of auto-generated opens that a particular sender is generating and then using that, using a little bit of math to kind of back it out mm-hmm. and then make assumptions about, oh, if your open rate among non-MPP users is X, let's scale it up. Yeah. Um, so for instance, uh, I know that MailChimp does this um, and some some other ESPs do yeah. it as well. They kind of um, estimate remove all the auto, but mm-hmm. then they kind of add in a portion based on what the real opens rates are. Yeah. And so you have comparable numbers. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely confusing, and your point about uh, doing retargeting mm-hmm. based on opens or a lack of opens can be problematic today, depending on what the ESP is doing. And then also uh, journeys that yeah. are based mm-hmm. on opens, which I know are really popular among a lot of B2B brands. Yeah, Those are also deeply problematic. I wrote an article about that uh, for um, marketing profs uh, a mm-hmm. number of months back. And I came up with like, I think it was like eight different strategies that you could like adopt to kind of get around this problem. <laughs> but like none of them were, <laughs> you know, they, none of them were as good as just, you know, having access to real open. So there's, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of um, uh, concessions that we're yeah. having to make because of MPP. As I released this podcast, Gmail, along with Yahoo, introduced new guidelines for bulk senders. However, I believe that Gmail tabs have the most significant impact on email marketing. Many people mistake the promotions tab for the spam folder, trying virus spells and potions to get out of the promo tab. Yeah, I, I remember writing about tabs like when it came out, and my... My advice is the same as it was back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sky is not falling. You know, this gives consumers um, a way to manage their email flows better. Um, and I know there was a lot of talk about, and even sometimes today we hear folks talking about, like, oh, how can I get in the primary tab? And yeah. way back in 2013, like, I compared the primary tab to being like knocking on someone's front door. Um, being a door-to-door salesman versus the promo tab being like the mall. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I think most retailers, most e-commerce companies today would rather be in the mall than going door-to-door, knocking on people's doors and interrupting them. And I think that that analogy still holds water today. Can your emails be more open if you land in the primary tab? Absolutely. But opens are not the goal, right? Mm -hmm. The goal is to be welcome and to be engaged with. And you can absolutely draw all kinds of negative attention to yourself by going around and knocking on everyone's door in a neighborhood. That's generally not the way to be successful. Um, You really want to be where people expect you to be. I think in general, uh, marketers, you know, maybe catch a little bit of this from advertisers. They're Mm -hmm. they're like very obsessed about grabbing attention, and you'll often see things about like attention grabbing subject lines and and things like that. And I don't think that it's about (laughs) attention at all, because 
you know, with email marketing, they've already opted in mm-hmm. to hear from you. So they've already, the attention grabbing has already happened. Yeah. And now it's a question of relevance. It's all about irrelevance, not attention grabbing tactics. It's relevance tactics, which are different. Because most of the time when people talk about attention grabbing, they're talking about stunts. They're talking about generating curiosity. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things don't always support a respectful, ongoing relationship. So I would tell people not to be concerned about <laughs> tabs at all. I, I sometimes hear people um, suggest that the promotions tab isn't the inbox. Yeah, it's the spam folder. That's, yeah, they, they yeah, think of yeah. it as being like the spam folder, and it's yeah. not. It's absolutely yeah. the inbox. Um, you know, and if people you know really love your emails and they don't want it in their promo tab, they'll they'll move you into the inbox. You mm-hmm. don't. You shouldn't ask them. They'll just do it on their own. Um, but like people, you know, they they want to control their inbox and they want to prioritize. And you know. Frankly, I think most brands, you know, if you, again, are a retailer or an e-commerce brand or whatever, like, I think you want to be in that promo tab because that's where people go when they're ready to shop and they're ready to make decisions. Mm-hmm. I think that's where you want to be when that happens. And, like, it'll be on the subscriber's time uh, rather than you trying to force the moment and interrupt them and butt in to the conversations that they're having, you know, in their primary tab. So... Yeah, that would be my rant about (laughs) tabs. I think it's like massively overblown. We covered external and internal risks or so-called killers for email marketing. What else will impact email marketing? I mean, like in terms of events, I think things like MPP Mm -hmm. has definitely been a major event that sort of caused like sort of a sea change of thinking. Um, I think the end of uh, third-party cookies is sort of a similar mm-hmm. technological event that is causing people to really reevaluate how they go to market, how they build relationships, you know, how they acquire data, what they do with it. Um, but I think if I, if I look ahead at what's really going to move um, – the industry in the years ahead. At the end of the second volume of, uh-huh. of my book, uh, I talk about four things that are really going to drive the future. And here, let me just look at that real quick. So the first one is tighter privacy regulations and restrictions. Um, so things like MPP, things like the, the end of third-party cookies, there's going to be more of that. I also think that here in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, only a matter of time before can spam is going to be replaced by something that resembles a modern <laughs> privacy a and anti-spam like, law. <laughs> so yeah. that, I mean, we're so far behind the rest of the modern world at this point um, with our regulations. We're so out of sync with what consumers expect. It's, you know, and we have now a variety of state laws like, you know, like CCPA in California, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's now a bunch of other states who have passed laws. And so at a certain point, there's going to be so many state level laws that it's going to be really complicated for companies to be in compliance with all of them because they have all these different stipulations. And so that's what's going to drive us towards a new national standard. So 
I'm excited about that because I think can spam is just a horrible, horrible law that just wildly sets the wrong expectations for how brands should use email marketing uh, and be successful at it. So that's number one. The second one is better mm -hmm. omni-channel orchestration. You know, you were hinting at, you know, email with other channels. For a long, long time, it seems like we were always talking about email versus social, email versus SMS. And I think everybody realizes now that that's like a total false <laughs> narrative and that it's, it's, it's email with SMS, email mm -hmm. with social, email with print, email with everything. And all of those other channels with email, you know, it's all about creating a cohesive brand experience across all of your channels. You know, that's what, you know, that's the core of what it is to be an omni-channel uh, company. And so that's where I feel very strongly we're, we're all headed. Um, the third thing for the future is more AI and machine learning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a near-term skeptic around generative AI, but a long-term optimist. So, you know, a lot of my current optimism uh, is around machine learning and sort of traditional AI, data-based, not language models. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's certainly a lot of cool things you can do with generative AI as yeah. well. And then the, the fourth and final thing, you know, that um, is going to drive the future is just ever-rising uh, consumer expectations. Uh that has been really the driver for a long time. That's going to continue to be like the North Star for brands is that we're always, always, always chasing rising consumer expectations. And we have to keep pursuing that. It seems to be that you can't sell nothing these days without adding AI to the features and functions. I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the use of AI in email marketing? Yeah, the topic of AI is a little bit confusing right now because I feel like the terminology has become kind of mm -hmm. bloated and not used very accurately anymore. So like when folks are talking about AI, uh, like my first question is, all right, what are we really talking about here? Are we talking about machine learning? Are we talking about generative AI? Are we talking about... <laughs> AI algorithms, like what are we talking about? Because those are all like three really, really different animals. Um, mm -hmm. And when we use a lot of, a fair amount of machine learning today in certainly the more advanced programs. So, you know, send time optimization, that's machine learning. And that's yeah. great. That's, that's really solid. <laughs> There's no, nobody's arguing that like that is... You know, doing any harm, it only, it only does good. So that mm -hmm. one's like really proven out. You know, uh, you know, traditionally a lot of subject line optimization tools have been machine learning, right? Yeah. Those are based on looking at past results using subject lines with those words for a particular audience and looking at the core, you know, the correlation between mm -hmm. you know open rates and click rates. Uh, to, to help you make choices about what words to make. Now we're talking about generative AI, which is completely different. It has no access to any uh, you know, past performance. It doesn't mm -hmm. understand your audience. Um, it doesn't have any intelligence that's related to your brand. Um, and certainly in terms of like voice and tone and things like that, you can train generative mm -hmm. AI up on that. But 
nobody's talking about like training it up on like performance. So it's not performative. I think that's the huge thing that really kind of like rocks my world is that we went from talking about machine learning and AI as performance enhancers. These are performance Mm -hmm. drivers, intelligence drivers, to now we're talking about generative AI and we're not talking about that at all. It's not about performance. It's about time savings. And can we do things faster? And that's a really different value proposition Mm because now it's all about like, you know, you know, being more nimble to a certain degree, but you know, reducing labor costs yeah. is what we're talking about. And that's just wildly different than <laughs> like the entire history of how we've talked about machine learning and AI in the past, which is, all right, how can we personalize at scale? How can we really use all the information we have about a particular describer to create a really relevant experience to like demonstrate that we know that person on a one-to-one level. Mm-hmm. Generative AI doesn't really help with any of that. It can, it can do other things. It can give you really great, you know, it's really super good at like helping you brainstorm and help like kind of identify maybe, you know, topics or phrasings that you hadn't thought of. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's actually going to be better. It's just brainstorming. So, you know, I'm kind of a, again, I, I'm a, a, a short-term skeptic, long-term optimist with generative AI. It may even be that like the large language models, the LLMs that, mm-hmm. you know, the ChatGPT and BART are based on, that may not even be the model yeah. that, you know, long-term generative AI runs on. It may actually need a completely different model to really be successful at the level that people are kind of predicting. So yeah. this may actually be you Premature. Know, an early gen. Yeah. Well, early again, gen. early gen, right? Early it's, gen. It's, you know, it's part of the journey, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, I, 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 I get a little bit frustrated with all these terms kind of being glommed together as just AI. And I've seen a number of presentations from really smart people mm-hmm. that like switch gears talking about generative AI and ML and other types of AI applications and not acknowledging that these things are incredibly different from one another and have different constraints, different risks, you know, different technological needs you know, and have wildly different use cases. And they talk about them like just interchangeably, <laughs> like from bullet point to bullet point. Um, yeah. It's really kind of shocking. Uh, I think it's just critical to understand that these things are wildly different. What's the impact of email on customers' expectations and experiences? Email marketing definitely has an impact on the customer experience. And can be really vital at setting expectations, answering questions before the questions arise, mm-hmm. um, and certainly surfacing your brand values and your product and service offerings. So I think email is absolutely a, a big part of the customer experience. I feel like today when we're talking about customer experience, I'm very happy that we're talking a lot more about omni-channel, because mm-hmm. you know, that's about like, you know, it's great if you treat your email subscribers well within the email channel. That's super. But okay. being able to <laughs> tie that behavior into the rest of the overall customer experience, mm-hmm. so having visibility into those email interactions um, and 
folding that into the experiences that you have, you know, in stores or in your SMS channel or uh, elsewhere is vital and vice versa. Mm -hmm. You know, we're finally getting to that place, you know, thanks to things like customer data platforms that we can actually aggregate all of that customer data that's kind of currently locked in a lot of silos, mm -hmm. bring it all together, and then make it accessible, you know, clean it up, <laughs> make it accessible <laughs> to all the channels in pretty much real time so that we can finally act like we know, like the right hand knows what the left hand is doing, which yeah. I think in a, in a lot of cases isn't always the case. And we see, mm -hmm. I think, a lot of cases on uh, <laughs> social media where consumers are really upset when we clearly don't know what's happening outside of the immediate channel. So mm -hmm. you see folks, you know, very angrily having their flights canceled and then getting promotional emails from the airline, <laughs> you know, an hour later yeah. and being just incensed and like unsubscribing or marking those emails as spam and retaliation because, mm -hmm. you know, there's this disconnect yeah. between what's going on with the customer and then what's going on in that channel that the customer is engaging with. So I think that's ultimately the goal mm -hmm. uh, is to treat customers like customers and not to treat them just like email subscribers or just like SMS subscribers or <laughs> treat them just like web visitors, but to pull all that together. Uh, and there's just massive opportunities there. And mm -hmm. I feel like we've been talking about it a lot uh, yeah. on the podcast, but it's, you know, it's email with all of these other channels and all these other channels with email. And the goal is to create that cohesive customer experience across all the channels, regardless of where they choose to engage and when they choose to engage. I want to talk about deliverability, a topic that is important to me, and it's often overlooked. How do you think that senders should tackle this issue? So deliverability, obviously, a huge topic area. I think the, the main thing to recognize today is that one, there's no escaping a bad sender reputation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it used to be that your sender reputation was attached to your IP address only. And so if you got a bad reputation, you could shut down an IP address and you could start up a new one and you were kind of starting fresh. Uh, but now sender reputations are also attached to your domain, mm -hmm. um, which opens up a, a lot a lot of things for sure but it, the big thing is it means you can't run away from a bad reputation because you're taking your domain with you unless you're shutting down your company and starting up a whole new brand you're taking that bad reputation with you it also means that affiliates and salespeople their behaviors can negatively impact and often do negatively impact your yeah. sender reputation because of what they are sending because th that behavior impacts your sender reputation attached to your domain. So that's the big, that's, that's big thing number one. Big thing number two <laughs> about um, deliverability is that so much of it is now driven by engagement. You know, it used to be uh, spam complaints, you know, negative reactions were really driving uh, deliverability, driving sender reputations, and now it's really positive interactions. You know, the inboxes want to see that your emails aren't just tolerated, um, but are engaged with. Mm -hmm. And engagement is just a massive, massive part of most mailbox providers' spam filtering algorithms. Certainly at Gmail, yeah. it's just enormous. <laughs> so you want 
your uh, subscribers to be opening your emails uh, and doing uh, other types of engagement. And there it gets a little bit tricky because of MPP um, <laughs> because, yeah. you know, everyone's talking about how like, oh, right, opens aren't so important anymore. Uh, you need, really need to focus on clicks. But a lot of mailbox writers don't track clicks. Like mm -hmm. that's not a part of their algorithm because they see that as <laughs> ironically a breach of privacy to be tracking what you're clicking on. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah. mm -hmm. Gmail can tell every time an email is read, yeah. and 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 that's a really important distinction. Like we use uh, open pixels to see o opens are something that we made up yeah. to approximate. Mm -hmm what is a read, the mailbox can always mm -hmm. see when an email is being read by one of their users. Clicks are a great proxy for all these other behaviors that we can't see, such as starring, foldering, um, you know, marking unread, uh, and all these other positive things that can happen mm -hmm. um, you know, that mailbox writers absolutely pay attention to. Uh, last I heard, Gmail had like, hundreds of different factors that they looked at when determining uh, deliverability. And we can't see like the vast, vast, vast majority of those signals. So yeah. we don't have a lot of visibility into it. And still at this point, it's opens and clicks that are our best field of vision into this really expansive set of, of metrics and behaviors that mm -hmm. mailbox providers use. But engagement is just absolutely critical, which is why so especially for large senders, MPP has been so devastating it's because <laughs> they're trying to do the right thing. They only uh -huh. want to send to people who are engaged. And now Apple has made it much more challenging for them to determine who's actually engaging with their emails. And unfortunately, I think in a lot of cases, it's, it's caused senders to send to the you know, send more emails to people who are less engaged because they just can't tell, yeah. um, mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate. I think that that's the thing for me that's sort of the most devastating about MPP um, is that ultimately I feel like it's harmed the subscriber experience because a lot of people are going to get more emails than they would have gotten otherwise. And they've made it, it's made it really challenging for brands to do the right thing mm -hmm. and follow the rules that mailbox providers have set up. Ironically, even Apple. <laughs> uh, I, th I think the language is, it might still be there. Maybe it's gone now, but like right after MPP launched and everyone was like, oh my gosh, well, how are we supposed to tell when people are opening our emails? Uh, at that point, if you went to like the Apple Mail, you know, like Postmaster page, it was stuff saying how like the number one, you know, way that you can get your emails delivered is to make sure your emails are getting engaged with. Yeah. And and that's still the rule. That's still the rule there. It's still the rule at Gmail. It's still a rule everywhere. That's still the number one thing you can do. It's just MPP has made it really hard for us to then follow the rules that mailbox writers are saying, uh, laying out for us. You recently wrote an article about deliverability generations, and you highlighted five stages or generations. Can you explain the genesis of the article and what do you think the sixth or the next generation of deliverability will look like? 
Yeah, so that article actually uh, was inspired by an, an old article that I wrote. I was I was doing some research and I stumbled across this old article I'd written <laughs> for Media Post that was about the third age of email deliverability. And uh, on reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, so much has happened since then. <laughs> uh, let's like kind of fill in like the dots that have happened um, since then. So, I mean, the general concept is just to recognize how much email deliverability has changed over the last, you know, say two decades plus. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the first age of email deliverability is essentially like the Wild West where there were really no rules. And like, if you had someone's email address, you could email them and they couldn't stop you. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was really no recourse. Um, so that was the first age. The second age, uh, Mailbox providers gave us the report spam button. Mm -hmm. And that was super powerful. For the first time, we could say, I don't like this, and I never want to see this again. And so that had a huge impact. But, you know, brands, senders were, were savvy. And they knew that if their, uh, their spam complaint rate was too high, they would get into trouble. So what they would do is they would bloat their list with tons of inactive subscribers to lower mm -hmm. their complaint rate. Because it's a percentage. <laughs> so, you know, very, very savvy. Yeah. And so, of course, inbox writers saw this and they were like, that's not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> that's not the spirit of how this is supposed to go. And so they started adding in engagement-based filtering. So that was, I think, a really pivotal moment because it meant that senders, the messages that senders sent to people not only had to be sort of tolerated, mm -hmm. you know, not hated, <laughs> but they actually had to be engaged with, have to be that they'll actually like those emails and interact with them. And so that was a huge, powerful moment. That was the start of the whole, you know, you know, quality over quantity kind of philosophy mm -hmm. when it comes to building lists. The fourth age is when mailbox providers started attaching sender reputations, not just to IP addresses, but also to domains. Mm -hmm. And that was also a really huge moment because it meant that if you had a bad reputation, you couldn't just abandon your IP addresses, spin up some new ones, mm -hmm. and nice and clean, and you get to start all over with the same bad behavior. And so, you know, now you really have to rehabilitate your bad behavior because your domain, unless you're unless you're a spammer, really mm -hmm. can't walk away yeah. from your domain. So it means you have to really take your sender reputation seriously. And then the fifth age, which is what we're in now, is that folks, primarily Apple, but not entirely just Apple, is making it harder for senders to see engagement. So it makes it a lot harder yeah. for senders to comply with the existing rules, which <laughs> as near as I can tell, have not changed at all because of Apple. Gmail has not changed their spam filtering algorithms. They have not stepped away from using engagement. It's my understanding that even Apple, which uses engagement-based filtering, has not changed its position. Engagement is still really critical to getting inbox placement at Apple. So the only thing that's changed is that it's way harder <laughs> for senders to understand the engagement of their subscribers and do the right thing. And that has precipitated a lot of complexity, uh, frankly, on the individual sender level where they have to figure out this sort of new alchemy mm -hmm. of understanding 
you know, really kind of the percentages, the likelihood that this particular subscriber is engaged with my emails based on, you know, what I can see from inboxes, but also lots of other behavior where they're kind of guesstimating, you know, engagement <laughs> based on how engaged they are with the brand through other channels and how much they're purchasing or how often they're, you know, visiting uh, their website or engaged with their app. So a lot of like, you know, fuzzy lines that are being connected, um, which again, really complicated, really complicated uh, to work out. So that's the fifth age. That's where we're at right now. So, but your question was, what does the sixth age look like? <laughs> yeah. uh, and there, I think, I think the sixth age really is going to be uh, more on the sort of legal regulation front. Um, Privacy. You know, GDPR, mm -hmm. I mean, especially here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. you know, GDPR, Castle, you know, laws in other industrialized nations are just way ahead of us here in the U.S. And, and frankly, like, those laws are aligned with consumer expectations, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. I think, actually, you know, it's laws always trail, always lag consumer expectations, con consumer desires and wants. They always lag. So, you know, the law is not fast, right? So it's it's just by inherent, its inherent existence is that it lags what people actually want. Mm -hmm. Now here in the US though, we're 20 plus years yeah. lagging behind consumer expectations around privacy, around email permission, and on and on and on. That cannot stand indefinitely. Here in the US, you know, obviously, um, you know, California has been leading the way yeah. and mm -hmm. really pushing for modern privacy standards that are much more in line with GDPR. Not exactly, but like, you know, in the ballpark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And already multiple other states have passed privacy laws. And they're not, there's not a huge email component to these laws just yet, but it seems like it's only a matter of time. The more of these state level laws that happen, uh, the more pressure there's going to be to have a national standard because complying with 20, 30 different state laws that are all slightly different is is really hard for businesses. And at a certain point, enough businesses complain about how complicated this is. Hey, why don't we have one national standard? And that's that's what's going to happen. It's just the, the clock is ticking. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of time. And I think when that happens, we'll also see... Uh, movement on email permission as well. I think these things will get tied together. And, you know, there's been burbling for a long time about you know updating CanSpam, which is just <laughs> so, so disastrously out of date. And you know, I like to say that, like at this point, I think CanSpam does harm because there are still a lot of businesses that like you know step one comply with the law. Yeah. And if you if that's where you stop, if you stop at step one your email program is just going to get totally trashed, you know, because CanSpam sets all the wrong expectations for how to run a successful email marketing program. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think it does like a huge disservice to businesses that are like, okay, what do I need to, what's the most important thing? You know, let's comply with the law. If you did that, you would just be in dire straits, like immediately, <laughs> which is, that's like that. So it's not good expectation setting for businesses for how to behave. So I see that as like, a major disservice to businesses. I, I think here in the U.S., we think, oh, regulation's bad. And so you know, fewer regulations, better. But I think there are a lot of instances where that's 
you know, really not the case. And I think can spam is, is absolutely one of those now where we could just be setting much better kind of a much better floor, much safer floor mm -hmm. for businesses to operate on in terms of the, running their email marketing program. So I think that's the sixth stage is like much better, <laughs> you know, expectation setting for businesses, much better regulations and laws that, you know, again, put businesses in a place to succeed and also aligns them with consumers, which also helps them succeed. So I think that's going to be the next big innovation in email deliverability, regulations, better laws. Awesome. How can people find you online, follow you, and buy your book? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, please, please do. I, I hope that folks <laughs> check yeah. out my book and yeah. hopefully it's, uh, it's just what you're looking for. You can find me uh, at emailmarketingrules.com. And from there, you can find, uh, you find me on social. You can find links uh, to purchase email marketing rules on Amazon um, and lots of other details, including tons of great content that I've, yeah. uh, I've been publishing. So please do check me out at emailmarketingrules.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Chad. Thank you, Sal. Thanks for having me.